HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska Seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. Hey, Food Radio listeners. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie, and I'm really excited to share that we're launching a brand new show. Meat and 3 is HRN's weekly food news roundup. Tune in for a deep dive and three tasty shorts every Friday evening. It's 15 minutes, so you can listen while you wait for your pizza. This week, the fight for universal free lunch in New York City public schools isn't over yet. I'm overburdened. I'm overworked. I don't get staffed when people are out. Plus, Dana Cowan, former editor of Food & Wine magazine and host of HRN's Speaking Broadly, catches up with Valerie Lomas, the winner of the Great American Baking Show's Derailed Season 3. Discover how a Danish brewery is motivating people to get fit and hear Alison Roman speak to the highs and lows of her cookie recipe going viral. Every time I see anyone in a social setting, that's generally the first thing they ask me is, how are the cookies? Be better informed and wildly inspired by the stories and people you hear on Meet and 3. Find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. We talk about food, we talk about music, with musical dudes, finger on the pulse, snacky tunes.
Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Darren Bresnitz. We are in beautiful St. Paul. It is cold. And we are sitting with Yia Vang, chef and co-owner of Union Kitchen Pop-Up. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. Hey, thanks, Darren, for having me. Uh, it's, I, I, technically, it's warm here Technically, for us. it is warm because... Yeah, like uh, anything over 40 is warm right now. And I can see the... Uh, sun trying to peek yeah, out behind yeah, the clouds yeah, yeah. but i'm glad i, I talked to people in advance because i definitely <laughs> was not going to bring winter boots or my winter coat <laughs> um so for people who are not familiar with union yeah. kitchen let's just set the stage a little bit yeah. what is it yeah union kitchen is a pop-up restaurant uh, we started in 2016 uh we started wanting just to cook good food for people but eventually um, people kept asking what kind of food do you guys do and eventually we just realized that Man, the food that we really love doing is Hmong food, and that you know that's our ethnic background. We're Hmong, and so we just really stick to that and uh, try to really keep um, maintain close to that. Now, for those who are not familiar with the Hmong community, mm-hmm. who are you? What's the history? Where are you from? Yeah. The Hmong people are an indigenous tribe um, of people that live in the in Southeast Asia. Uh, a lot of them are located in uh, Vietnam, uh, Laos, Thailand area. Uh, but after uh, the Vietnam War in 1975, the first wave of Hmong people immigrated to the U.S. And uh, actually in 75, were the first Hmong immigra- immigrants here into the Twin Cities. Um, now, you were born in Thailand? Yeah, I was born in Thailand in, um, in a refugee camp called Ban Vinai, or sometimes just called Vinai, uh, in 84. And then we moved here in 88. Um, and what was that like? I mean, do you have any memories from that time? You know, it's kind of one of those like really weird, like... Uh, you have memories, but you're not sure if it's a dream or if it was like really happened. So I just remember just being a little kid running around these, you know, these this village, you know, living with my cousins and my uncles and my uh, uh, with my grandma and yeah. So a little bit, you know, like my first experience was of uh, being on a plane was really weird. I remember uh, as a kid, they told us to go through these big long tunnels and you sat on these metal chairs, made a lot of noise, and I fell asleep. And I woke up and they told us we were in America. And I just thought that to get to America, you just got to walk through tunnels <laughs> to get to America, not knowing that I was actually on a plane. So. Well, if Elon Musk has anything <laughs> to do with it, we're not that far away. Um, so in the refugee camp, coming to America, mm-hmm. what was the importance of food in your family? Yeah, so uh, like I've told many people, um, in our culture, the Hmong people don't have a country or uh, a flag or even an anthem of our own. And the only thing that we did really have that we close, that we kept close to, especially for indigenous people that are always moving um, was your food. So every every generation did a, cooked a certain way and they passed it on to the next generation, which passed it on to the next generation. So uh, I grew up eating uh, Hmong food, which, you know, is to me, I, when I was younger, all I wanted was uh, ham and cheese sandwiches and Lunchables. That's all I really wanted. And I just wanted to be a normal kid going, growing up here in America. But, uh, but looking back on it now, it's just like, this is the food of our people. This is the food that tells the story of our people. And I love it. Now, the cooking is not just done by the men or the women, but the roles are split, right? Yeah, the cooking has some split roles, like especially if you like for big parties, the men would handle the proteins, the women will handle a lot of the side dishes. You know, your everyday cooking like in the household is it switches back and forth, you know, depending like, you know, I think they're more quote unquote traditional cooking roles um, when we first came to America, but now it's because of, you know, like mom and dad both having to work it, you know it just it differs but um but for a lot of parties uh and, and festivals a lot of the men handle the protein and the women they'll handle like the side dishes now there's also a lot of ants right 
because when you, I, I was reading up on you talking about yeah. you, there seems to be like an, an abundance of ants that were always around yeah. to cook or scold or feed or help. Yep. So, you know, the Hmong people really believes in the philosophy of it takes a village to raise a kid. <laughs> so, like, growing up, it's not like you had one mom or dad. It's like you kind of had, like, ten mom or dads. Like, at any time, you can be disciplined by any of your aunts and uncle, you know? Oh, so, it was just like, it wasn't like, oh, like, you can't do anything because you're just my aunt. It's like, no, she has the authority of your mom. She, and, she has authority. Yeah. And, in fact, if you disobey your, your aunt yep. and then your mom hears about it. Yep, it, it was worse. It was worse. Yeah, so, um, but, like, there's a lot of aunties who... You know, and like when the women get together and they, and it's almost this kind of fluid, like they get together and it's like, you don't, they don't tell like, oh, you could you do this or can you do this? It was like, they automatically just know what to do. And, and then just kind of like, you know, then they start talking the gossiping happens, starts to happen. And it's like, what, whose daughter got married to whose son and what happened <laughs> with what? And, you know, it's like, I always tell people, it's like, have oh, you ever seen uh, my big fat Greek wedding in you know, yeah. that movie? It's yeah. like the Asian version of that. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, now, you touched on it a little bit about, you know, wanting the ham sandwich and yeah. things like that. But yeah. what was it like, um, you know, there's that pull of being first generation. Yeah. But, I mean, you're sort of first generation, yeah. even though you were born yep. uh, in Thailand, mm -hmm. of this, like, pull to be yeah. white American yeah. versus sticking to your culture. How big was that pull for you? Yeah, it, it, when we were growing up... Um, all you want, like, as any kid growing up, you just want to be normal, right? Like, yeah. you, I mean, kid growing up itself, like, white, black, blue, green, doesn't matter. Like, you just want to be a normal kid. And that's, you know, that's what any kid wants. So as a kid growing up, I just wanted to be normal. But it, but then, like, you know, for example, like, for lunch, my parents would pack, like, you know, like, like grilled chicken with, like, spicy sauce and, like, sticky rice. And you take that to lunch, like, you open that up and your buddy's got, you know, bologna and cheese sandwich. It's like, you look weird. And... So for me, I just really wanted to eat, like, we just called it, like, American food. Sure. So it was like, like, I remember when we came home from school and we had uh, spaghetti and, like, meat sauce, you know, like the institutional meat sauce yeah, yeah. at school. We came home, we're like, Mom, Mom, you got to learn how to make oh, this. Oh, Mom, you don't even know yeah. what they're doing. Yep. And she's just like, I've just layered yeah. 12 different herbs yeah. and yep. vegetables into this pot. Yeah. And, 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 all, and, then, and then the worst part is, like, we just love fast food. Like, I remember the first time I had my big, my first Big Mac, you know, I was just like, what is this? Like, there's no rice involved. Like, you can just, like, it's like a sandwich, but not a sandwich. Like, it blew my mind. And um, I were even, like, going to Subway and getting our first Subway order. It was just like, I could just tell them whatever they want, I want, and they put it in that sandwich for me, you know? But there's also this dichotomy because your parents are teaching you how to cook, and there's this, this uh, story of your dad like letting you take over the grill yeah, one yeah. day, which as a young white American probably would not happen at yeah. such a young age. Yeah. So it, it, it is. I mean, it was really cool. But like when you're a kid, again, you just overlook all that stuff. Sure. You know, like you're like, I don't care. Like I, I just want to be a normal kid that can go outside and play. Yeah. Uh, but then like my dad didn't believe in signing us up for like um, little league or like swim class or basketball camp because he's just like, that stuff's not practical. Like, I'll teach you how to change oil in the car. I'll teach you how to um, butcher a pig. I'll teach you how to, like, you know, you know, debone a chicken. But none of that stuff really makes sense. And as a kid, you just hate it. You're like, oh, my gosh, I can't do any of this stuff. But now as an adult, it's just like, like, I remember my first year of college, I took a chicken and I, I deboned it and broke it down. And I remember my roommates looked at me. We were all white. They're like, how do you know how to do that? And I'm like, well, doesn't everybody know how to do that? They're like, no. no. Like, and so, like, I had, a, like, a big like, awakening where it's like, oh, my gosh, like, I was very privileged by the things that my mom and dad taught me. And even, like, going to the garden, 
like learning how to plant, you know, learning how to harvest. Like this is survival. This is life for us. It wasn't like a game. It wasn't like artisanal meat crafted, blah, blah, blah. It was like, no, kid, if we don't do this, we don't have food, you know. It's amazing when you get old enough and what seemed like a pain was actually a privilege and yep. it flips in your mind. Yeah. Um, now, was it in college when you started thinking about maybe I'll start cooking professionally, yeah. maybe I'll get into kitchens? So, as, as a kid growing up, I, I, I was an ambulatory learner, so I always learned by using my hands. But, so, growing up, um, it, we just had this rule at the house, if you cook, you didn't have the dishes. I hated doing dishes, so I would just be in the kitchen. Love that rule. Yeah. Good and, rule for any household. Yeah, yeah. So then I told my mom, or my dad, because my mom worked second shift, my dad would sit there and he would tell me what to do and I would just do it and kind of make dinner. And eventually when I got to college, I was just like, like holding a knife, working with like proteins, like it was just natural to me. And so I, I took up, you know, I found some job doing, you know, cooking at some Italian restaurant and uh, I, I hated it. Like I, I hated restaurant cooking because you work when all your friends play. Yeah. And I, and I hated that life. And so my whole life was been through college was trying to get out of it but then it's like when you become like the cook with your friends everybody asks you to do favors for them and you're like okay whatever so were you were so you put a toe into the professional world yep didn't like it but we're cooking for friends cooking on the side yep yep and we, and you know and then uh halfway through college a lot of friends were getting married so they're like hey um I, I, we're kind of poor but here's like a thousand bucks can you feed you know our wedding for 300 people for a thousand i'm like oh sure like that's the most money I've ever seen. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah, and you're like, yeah, I can get you for 100 and keep you 100 yeah, left over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we were like, we were all just like poor college kids together. So we're like, let's just help each other. And then people were like, oh, you can't, you know, you have a catering business. And I'm like, a what? <laughs> like, I had no idea what I was doing. I was like, I just cooked for my buddy and he gave me some money, you know. And, and then what brought you to Minneapolis eventually? Yeah, so eventually after I got done with school, again, I was trying to get out of cooking. So I was like, well, I want to come do some grad school up here. I wanted to... Like, I remember when I first came to visit, like, so I'm from central Wisconsin. Okay. And so I, when I first came to visit uh, the, the Twin Cities area, and I went downtown, and I saw all the high-rises. I thought to myself, one day I'm going to work in there. Like, I'm never, I'm never going to work in the kitchen ever again. Yeah. Uh, when I, well, when I moved up here for grad school, the only job I could find was managing a, a catering kitchen. So it's like, uh, here I go again. And, and, uh, I, and I kind of begrudgingly just like, uh, I don't know, whatever. But it wasn't until about, like, five or six years ago where – what really hit me was that food wasn't just sustenance that we eat. And it's also, I think, the food culture started changing. It did. It, you know, like let's five say, or six years really yep. was a big shift. Yeah, even if you go back ten years ago, like like it wasn't about like just these like like large chef guys that are sitting behind these closed doors, but it was kind of like food kind of had stories that we could yep. tell with it. And and so I was very blessed to be in that. And so five or six years ago, um, I got hit really hard with the idea that people plus food equals community so we just said wow like when people gather together and there's food around community naturally evolves and so so we uh so i kind of just started like kept, kept that in the back of my mind um i worked for a church actually uh running their kitchen it was a big church four thousand people uh, i was kind of i made my you know i just told my everybody that i was the, the church lunch lady um <laughs> it was super fun but i learned a lot about what how food and community works together side by side into bringing people together and so we kept pointing the phrase at the table you know or we kept saying um the, the uh, food uh, is the great equalizer when, when you sit at the table together everyone's equal regardless of your background because at the end of the day um when everything's said and done um we're all hungry we have a hunger and there's this uh, sense of humanity uh, that, that we really see in each other when when we eat together 
And so that started changing the way I started thinking about food and the way that I started making food. And instead of trying to be, you know, some fancy French, you know, because I, I had my background in French cook, cooking, some fancy French dish or trying to be some trendy dish, I just said, hey, like, I just want to tell a story about my people with our food. Amazing. Well, listen, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, we're going to come back and then we're going to talk about the, a little bit more of your professional training and then the start of Union Kitchen. We have a song uh, from the Snackatoons archives here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Snackatoons. We are sitting with Yia Vang, chef and co-owner of Union Kitchen in St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, 
Now, I know what brought you to Minneapolis. Uh, sorry, let me start over. Hello and welcome to Snacky. Hello, welcome back to Snacky Tunes. Um, hello, welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We're sitting here with Dia Vang, chef and co-owner of Union Kitchen. So you come back to Minneapolis, you're cooking for this church kitchen, um, and you're sort of seeing food through this community, but there's also a giant Hmong community here in Minneapolis and St. Paul. Yeah, so here in the Twin Cities area, it has the largest, um, sorry, sorry, not the largest, but the most dense Hmong population. So in the, in the Metroplex here, uh, we have about 68,000 Hmong. And is that the world? Uh, I, I want to say in the world, yes. And so what brought everyone here to the city? Uh, so it's kind of a funny story because the climate and temperature here is completely opposite of like this Southeast Asia. This does not Asia. remind me of Southeast yeah. Asia <laughs> yeah. at all, yeah. Yeah, on those balmy, you know, oh, December yeah. mornings. Yeah, we think of Southeast Asia. Um, well, here in the Twin Cities has one of the largest, uh, I think it's Methodist or Lutheran, I think Methodist and Lutheran like nonprofit immigration group. So when after the war... Um, after the Vietnam War in 1975, they were the ones who were the first, the first to take on Hmong immigrants and refugees. And they, the churches, a lot of the Lutheran and Methodist churches sponsored them. The families sponsored them. So as the, as the Hmong immigrants came over, um, what we did was uh, we lived with uh, a lot of uh, Lutheran and Methodist uh, church members out here. And so, and so as that started flowing, um, more and more, and then as more family, more Hmong families are financially stable enough to sponsor some of their, you know, relatives, then more started coming over. And, yeah, so this area, Wisconsin, has got some big um, Hmong population, yeah. Um, so after cooking in the church, mm-hmm. what brought you back in professional kitchens? How did you, what made mm-hmm. you want to go back into them? So, yeah, so running this church uh, um, program was incredible. I, I learned a lot about food, learned a lot about community. Uh, and then I kind of just hit this wall where it's just like, I think if I would have just kept up doing what I was doing there, it was great. But um, I just really wanted to get back into the restaurant world. And so uh, there were a few new restaurants that were opening, helped help with some of that, and then eventually ended up working at some of the um, good fine dine places here. And while I was doing that, I mean, it was good, but I was still kind of trying to search, figure out my voice in all this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it came this aha moment where, you know, I was working myself pretty hard health-wise. I wasn't doing well. And so we, you know, so I had to figure out a different way of doing this. But still, I still wanted to tell my story. I still wanted to be able to cook monk food. And so, uh, a friend of mine, Eddie Wu, owns a restaurant called Cook St. Paul, and uh, he just started doing pop-ups. You know, he started uh, having young guys come in and do pop-ups and talk to him. And he's like, "Yeah, you know, if you want, let you know, we'll, we'll set up a Friday night and let's do it." And how familiar were people? Uh, and what years were they? with Hmong food outside of the Hmong community? Yeah, so Hmong food is really kind of... So some of the first Hmong like, restaurant entrepreneurs who came here, they um, put their food under the Thai emblem. So a lot of Hmong-owned restaurants have the word Thai in it, or, or it's known as a Thai restaurant. Sure. So what the Hmong people did was they cooked Thai food and even Chinese food because it was the most marketable way of doing food here. But was it still Hmong food? I, no, I, it was like their take on Chinese. And yep, or, yeah, or, or 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 some places straight up just did pho shops, which is Vietnamese, and they did kind of their take on it. But you know, but when people come in and it was good, and people weren't asking, so is this a Hmong person that's making this, or is this a Vietnamese person? It was just, oh, it was good, whatever, you know. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. So a lot of Hmong 
entrepreneurs, uh, a lot among uh, cooks, that's how they started. It was just doing that. And even to today, like there's really no quote unquote Hmong food place. A lot of it does Thai, they do Laotian, low Vietnamese, low Chinese too. And then um, the, the closest we have here is we have a couple Hmong markets uh, that, are, that are like kind of big markets where they do Hmong food in it. But even then, it, it still has a lot of influence from uh, different cultures. And, and, and I'm pretty open about that. You know, I'm saying that, you know, Hmong food is kind of like a, uh, a mashing of different Southern, Southeast Asian cultures because of how our people have been influenced by them. So in that sentiment, mm-hmm. that sort of brings up the whole idea of authenticity. Mm-hmm. And in starting Union Kitchen, did you want to open an authentic Hmong restaurant? Or is there levels of authenticity of people who are from your parents or grandparents' Mm -hmm. generation who goes, this isn't authentic, and you go, I know it's not, but we have to update it. Like, like what's your thought on that? So what what we tell people from Union Kitchen standpoint, we say that Hmong food isn't a type of food. It's a philosophy of food. So that means we have the freedom. We have the freedom to do what we want. Um, the word Hmong is actually translated to mean uh, meaning free. So we're, we're, our people is known as a freed people, where we, we're not confined to a certain land or to a certain type of rules or a certain type of tradition. And that's what I love about being Hmong, is that we're free. So we would, so a lot of, so when I look at the word traditional, I look at it with an open and, uh, and a closed hand kind of model. Like closed as in, like, there's these deep, rich, cultural traditions that we won't let go of who we are that makes us who we are and then open by saying that we have never had a home so wherever we've gone we've learned from the land we learn from the people from the land so it would make complete sense that you know 50 60 years ago our my grandparents and my parents were living in laos and they're learning from the laotians and they're, they're eating from the fruits of laos and thailand right wouldn't it make complete sense that our people that we're here now in the Midwest, and especially up here in the northern northern Midwest in, in, in Minnesota, wouldn't we learn from the land here? Wouldn't we learn from the people here? Wouldn't we learn from the farmers here that have been here? The first Swiss and Norwegian settlers came here in 1860. So they, they're over 100 years ahead of us. So wouldn't it be, isn't it Hmong to mean that you learn hmm. from what's around you, that, that, that we adapt so that our next generation will survive and will keep moving on that will keep progressing on and how much influence does Minneapolis farmers and fair and terroir have on the Hmong food that you're making a lot I, I, I say that it's the backdrop of what we're doing um, like just even think about like Minnesota pork like some of the best pork in the US comes from Minnesota so like knowing that wow we can get some really darn good pork out here uh, I think about like um, I think about root vegetables you know like we have uh um, here in the Twin Cities, they have a really good root vegetable program. So I'm learning things about, like Hmong diets, we usually don't use things like radishes and turnips and rutabagas and all that stuff. But I'm learning a lot about that. I'm learning about using so what, th- using our flavors and putting it into kind of um, the, the, the different uh, produce that we get here. So the best way I explain it to people, I'm like, if you want to know about Hmong food, you got to think of it this way. Um, if you look at... Um, like the Midwest here, especially. If you looked at it as like the Midwest producing product is like the canvas, our flavors and our technique is like the paint. Mm-hmm. So we use our paint on the canvas that's given to us. That's beautiful. So uh, like, for example, like the Hmong people that live in Southern California, like cook differently because of the produce and product there. The Hmong people that are in Orlando area cook differently. Hmong people that are in Portland, uh, 
Pacific Northeast there, they cook differently because of what's around. So yeah. I, I think that our way to adapt and our way to be not confined to these old traditions is what makes us monk. So now that you have your backdrop mm-hmm. and your paint yeah. and a physical space yep. at Cook St. Paul, yep. um, what was the early days of the pop-up kitchen? Um, how did yeah. people react? Yeah, so we, we, had, uh, we had what I call uh, three groups of people. We had the hardliners who are like, well, that's not real monk food if it's not exactly like the way that our parents did it. I get it, but we're not growing green papaya out here. Like, sure. let, let's just call it what it is. You yeah. know, we don't got mangoes and mango trees. Okay, okay. And then we have them, and then we have the guys who are just like, oh, whatever. Like, I'll, I'll eat whatever, no big deal. And then we have the ones who are really kind of believing in what we do. You know, that that can really see kind of the message and the story that we're trying to tell. Like, we're, we're authentic to the story of our people. Like, you know, when when we cook a dish, I tell them the story. I just say, hey, this is where this dish comes from. This is how we tweaked it because of the produce and product we have around here. So we're, we're adapting it to so that our kids one day can build upon it. And so now that you've been open um, and that you're established and there's been a ton of press and things like that, what are the stories that you're continuing to tell yeah. um, in honoring the, the Hmong people and the culinary tradition? Yeah. So what one of the stories, I, I mean, what I always say is that every dish has a narrative. You follow that narrative close enough and long enough you get to the people behind the dish. And then once you get there, it's not about the dish anymore. It's actually about the people. It's about their story. And then food is the great cultivator. It, it's, it's, uh, food is a callus into cultivating friendships, you know, and relationships. And so that is the core of being Hmong, I believe, that using food as a way of connecting people together because it was this idea that we didn't have much, you know, but, but together we can have more. So, um, so I think that that one part is the story that we keep trying to tell of our people um, that as a united group our people were stronger that way and then it's through our food that we connect with each other so um, yeah so I think that's one way uh, I, you know since we've been open since we've been able to engage in conversations where I, I have many people there like you know what you know like many, many white friends who said hey I grew up with like a monk kid and I knew him and but I never knew the story of your people and so I mean even when some of the media press is coming through, uh, I've had friends who I've known for 10, 15 years through college who said, I never knew this about your people. I never knew that you guys mm. are, uh, your, your people group was, a, was a, you know, kind of like refugees from a, from a war. Like, I never knew that. And, you know, part of me is like, yeah, it's like when we were younger, like, I don't think you wanted to know that. Yeah. You know, I was just one of your Asian friends or I was just your friend, right? But once you start knowing that story, I think a lot of my friends are like, Dad, I never knew that your dad fought in this war. I never knew that he, you know, worked for the CIA as a secret government, you know, uh, paramilitary troops, you know. Really? So, yeah, yeah. So that's a lot of the, a lot of the Hmong people were um, hired on. Uh, the CIA and the Green Berets, Special Forces, came in and trained them uh, to rescue uh, down American air pilots who would bomb the Ho Chi Minh Trail in Laos. So the Hmong people became... Uh, uh, kind of a proxy army for the U.S. government, and then it was called uh, the Forgotten War. And then, and there was a handshake deal that was made by the Hmong leaders and the U.S. government, saying, "Win or lose, you get free citizenship." Um, U.S. pulled out of Saigon, pulled out, and then left the Hmong people behind, and they were genocided by the Northern um, Communist Party that came through. And that's why uh, all of the Hmong people became refugees in Thailand because Thailand. Uh, took them on, and then Thailand didn't want them because that brought too much trouble. So, 
then then they set them up in like internment camps. And then they, then many of them made it to America. Uh, some did because because yeah, like a lot of them did, but then it was kind of like still like our people got left behind, and and so there was this great trek of Hmong immigrants or Hmong refugees going to, to to Laos and or from to Thailand and. When you get from Laos to Thailand, there's this big river called the Mingkong River, which a lot of families are split up and a lot of people died trying to cross it. And but, so, but your family and your tradition were able to hold on to those traditions even through all of this, which is an amazing thing to be able to, when you eat your food, be like, this is not just a dish on a plate. Like, this really tells the history. Like, we held on to this. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think that one of the things I tell all our young cooks, especially our young monk cooks, and I always say, we're storytellers, gentlemen. I tell them that. I said we're storytellers, and because you got to know where you come from to know who you are to know where you're going, and that's what we constantly try to tell some of these young guys. Because I think a lot of these young guys who are born here in, in in America, a lot of the young Hmong guys who are born in America, they feel uh, they're they're third culture kids. They they, they yeah. don't they don't have an identity. Like where am I? Like I'm not from this land. I don't look like these people. I dress like them. I speak like them. I have same traditions as them, but I'm not them. And so there's this identity crisis, and we really want to bring people together, especially young Hmong people, uh, especially together by saying, hey, like, here are the foods of our fathers and their fathers, and let's let's talk about that. Let's find that commonality in that. So knowing where you've been mm-hmm. and knowing where you are uh, with the current pop-up, mm-hmm. with the weekly pop-up yep. at Cook St. Paul, what's the future? What's up next? Yeah, so... Um, so I, I just feel like the story of Union Kitchen is kind of like the story of our people, right? So you, you think about how our people came from this area where we had no land, no home, and then we ended up here in America. And I remember the first time we landed in Amer- when we came to America and we rented an apartment. And, and my dad would explain to me what rent was. It's like every month you pay this amount of money and they let you live here. And then eventually we bought a house. And I remember the first time we bought a house, my, my dad looked at me and said, son, this is ours. Like, you know what that means? Do you mean that every month when we give this money to this bank, a piece of this house, a piece of this acreage is ours? Like, it was the first time in our history that we owned something, that, that, that the government couldn't come in and take it from you. We owned it. And, and, and he was just like, we can build whatever we want in here. And I remember, it was like, I remember in high school, like, it didn't, didn't really sink in until later in life where I'm like, oh, man, that's huge for us to own our own spot. So as I think about that, I think of kind of like the history of Union Kitchen. Like it started out in the backyards of friends' houses. You know, we were kind of like just mosh posh. And then, and then some of our friends came over and said, hey, you know, we, we have a spot. You can use our spot. And so we kind of rented from them. And, and then eventually one day, um, we're still working on it, but one day we would love to get a brick and mortar. Like, like to say that this is our own. Like, like this isn't a Thai restaurant. This isn't a Vietnamese restaurant. This isn't a Laotian restaurant. Like... No, no, like no diss on all those guys. No, you know? of course but, not. But, but this is a Hmong restaurant, and we do Hmong food here, and and we're inspired by young Hmong artists who come through, and we're inspired by the stories of our our fathers and our and, and our great grand and our great uh, our grandfathers, and the stories of my mother and my aunts and my grandma. Like those are the things that inspire the way that we make our food here. But we're gonna do it uh, through the canvas of we call the Northern Midwest canvas, where we're able to connect with, you know like the white farmer who probably you know doesn't know much about our people but we can still connect with them and say hey i want to use your produce i want to use your product like i want i want to connect with you this way you know and so yeah so that's the future that, that we're we were wanting to build upon well awesome well thank you so much for sitting down with us where can people find more information on union kitchen yeah you can just go online uh union kitchen mn as in like minnesota.com uh, we have our facebook page 
uh, also, and then our Instagram, Union Kitchen MN. So yeah, so just go online and you can read more about stuff on us. And you know, uh, we just had a recently we just had a documentary video come out uh, on us. So yeah, you can watch that and get more better insight and all that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate yeah. it. Thanks, Darren. Yep, we have a song from the archives and then a live performance here on Snacking Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Snacky Tunes 5 about wine and the weather here in Brooklyn has been, uh, for someone like me who craves air conditioning and hates heat and humidity, dreadful. 90 degrees, swampy, and it's like 85 and the same. So I'm a little miserable and you'd think I would be dreaming of cool, crisp wines. But actually I'm thinking about volcanic wines, which seems kind of like the opposite of what I would want. I don't want to think of erupting lava melting everything in its path. I want cool breezes. I want oceans. I want lakes. I want everything to cool me off. But actually, volcanic wines are really cool. Let me tell you a little bit about them. It's like um, 
saying, hey, I like wines from Napa. I like Sauvignon Blanc. I like um, whatever, wines from whatever region, country, grape you'd like. It just sounds cool to say volcanic wines. Like, I'm into volcanic wines. I don't know what you're into, but I like volcanoes. But really, uh, volcanic wines are not about uh, really erupting volcanoes, although that can certainly happen in places like Mount Etna and active volcanoes. But really, it's about uh, the soil, the volcanic soil, and it's producing some really unique, amazing wines. There's actually even a book about volcanic wines, which has probably the most compelling subtitle of a book I've seen for a wine book, at least, Salt, Grit, and Power. Doesn't that sound really cool? Salt, Grit, and Power. I just feel like I could just say it like some kind of a wine mantra all day long. Um, I'll highlight a couple of ones to check out if you're interested. One would be um, from the island of Santorini uh, in Greece. Um, there's a grape produced there that's an indigenous grape called um, uh, Assyrtiko, and it makes for a uniquely delicious white wine. It's very crisp and, and refreshing, but it has, it has some weight to it. It's not like light and breezy, and it can actually age really well too. Uh, and I mean, just imagine being on the island of Santorini. You're looking out at the caldera. It's like blue like you've never seen blue before, contrasting with all the white buildings. You've got like an incredible salad, like a Greek salad with like feta made there and the best tomatoes you've ever eaten in your life. You pour yourself a nice big glass of Sirtico. You are in heaven. Um, another place to check out is the Canary Islands. It's actually a place I haven't been, but if you just Google um, Canary Islands vineyards, these landscapes are... I guess other, I'd say otherworldly, but they are of this world and they are real. The grapes are grown in this, like, um, I'm looking at it right now, uh, on this, like, stark black volcanic soil. And the vines just kind of peek out of the ground a little and are low to the ground. And they're kind of in these, like, cool, like, volcanic soil pits. Or they have these half-moon uh, handmade stone uh, walls to kind of protect them from the elements, um, which is kind of like in Santorini, too. The vines grow really low to the ground. They actually weave them. That's another thing to Google would be like Vineyard Santorini. The vines are woven into like a basket to protect the grapes on the inside from the, uh, the, from the wind because the, the wind there is, is pretty brutal. Um, <clears throat> one other place, I mentioned Mount Etna before, and that's probably, I guess, the the darling of the wine world I actually was at Scampi, this restaurant in um, Manhattan, and I was thinking how just the, the variety of wines you can get on Mount Etna from Mount Etna are just so uh, astonishing. I started with a sparkling rosé, which is something I didn't really think I would have from Etna, but it was really delicious. Uh, the producer is Murgo, M-U-R-G-O, and uh, I think it retails for like 20-ish dollars, and it was pretty astounding too. And What's interesting about it, too, is like many uh, sparkling rosés and, and, you know, regular still rosés are very pale, um, that Provencal style. And this is a, a sparkling rosé with a little bit of um, meat on the bone. It's darker. It's a little richer. It's still very refreshing, but it's great with like uh, richer seafood dishes. Uh, I think I had um, mackerel with it, and it was really perfect, really one of the, the better pairings I've had in a while. You could also explore the whites, which are made from a grape called Caracante. Um, I'm sort of loath to compare it to anything else. I think it's very unique, but um, Eric Asimov in the New York Times talked about these wines as having a kind of a salinity or saltiness to them, but not like, you know, like putting salt in water or something like that, but a, a pleasing salinity uh, sounds better, I guess, than saltiness. So you can, uh, you can check that out. And then uh, finally, the reds uh, made from Norello Mascalese, and that's what the rosés are usually made from too, is dynamite. I think if you like, uh, I'm going to compare it. If you like Burgundy or um, uh, Barolo, any Nebbiolo-based Nebbiolo wine, I think you'll find it really 
uh, a fascinating and delicious wine, and they're really cool. So uh, you can also check out some of these wines on my blog, jamesonfink.com, and go out there and explore the world of volcanic wines. Think about what it takes to swim a coastline longer than the entire eastern seaboard and leap tall waterfalls in a single bound. What does it take to survive 200 feet deep in icy saltwater? What would you be made of? Wild Alaska seafood is made of tight muscle mass, long chain omega-3s, and incredible micronutrients. It matters where your food comes from. Experience the flavor of the fittest in every bite and enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. Ask for Alaska on the menu, grocery store, or smart device. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Aaron Bresnitz. We are sitting in the legendary Dangerbird Studios in Silver Lake with Arthur King. Hey, guys. Hello. Hello, 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 hello. Super excited to be recording a band in Los Angeles. This is not an everyday feat for us, but hopefully it'll be an everyday occurrence. Every day. You're going to be here every day? Every day. <laughs> every day you write the book. Every day write the book. So uh, why don't you guys introduce yourself? Peter. I'm Aaron. And? Slew. Slew. Slew on the visuals. Slew's on the visuals. Can which you see him? Which is obviously the most important part of any uh, radio podcast. Uh, so for those who are not familiar with Arthur King, who are you guys? Uh, we are a... Uh, a music and art collective mm-hmm. um, based out of Los Angeles. Members ranging from uh, uh, musicians ranging from drummers, horn players, bass players, guitar, keyboards, played with many legends like Lou Reed and John Cale and Beck and Early Mart. Early Mart. And, uh, but Just this is, the, uh, this is co- sort of the small footprint version of that band. Yeah. This is the duo version. Because normally trio. you have the Nightsy, and that's a much larger setup, right? Yeah, that's, that's like, uh, can be around eight, about eight, eight members. Now, you guys are improv all the time only. Total improv. Total improv. Yeah. Uh, what made you get involved with improv? What's the inspiration behind being an improv group? Um, I mean, we all, or at least like the two of us, and most of us came from non-improv, you know, the standard, traditional, premeditated, rehearsed, all that stuff. And it was just kind of, um, you know, a page, at least in my life, where I was like, oh, man, I want to get back to getting in a room with some people and just make some noise. And there's nothing, there's no money, there's no songs, there's no nothing involved, just like, let's just have some fun. And so that's kind of how it started. A little pure. A little purer. For sure. Right? Just do it. Um, so when you set out to be a completely improvisational band, I don't want to say boundaries, because that's not the right word, but like, w- what's the parameters that you have? Because obviously you're playing a specific type of music, mm-hmm. like it's not one improv versus another but it's just like there is a vibe to all of your recordings and everything you've done yeah so i mean with total improv i think the parameters are the people you know the the people involved are gonna make it what it is but for us also the environment is is a total factor and we've gone out to the middle of nowhere um you know and made music and done it out on a boat and done it in an art gallery and in a studio and each time it's kind of like 
it really does affect what's happening more than just you know this what you're hearing it's like what what you're seeing we have a a heavy visual component but also just like who else is there even if they're not making music or what else is there everything is a part of it it's sort of in a way you're capturing the like the terroir to a t of that moment yeah uh and putting it into the music for sure um so when you're out in these areas are you pulling sounds from the areas i mean we're hearing a little bit in the background right now um, and obviously a desert versus a forest versus a cafe. How are you working with the sounds around you? Yeah, so the sounds, I mean, for this project in particular, so when we're talking about the Night Sea or Arthur King and the Night Sea, there's different band members and different applications and stuff and, and different approaches really to to making music. But this one in particular does have to do with going out to an environment and um, using field recordings, mm. audio and visual field recordings, kind of during the day, just capturing sounds. And then uh, when night falls, we'll find a spot to project and we'll basically, you know, load visuals into a video sampler, load audio into audio samplers, and kind of like it's almost like weaving a dream out of, you know, a, a narrative uh, experience that you have in normal, you know, daytime, whatever, linear consciousness. You know, we're kind of taking that apart, and you can grab sounds and images, and they become different things together. And so, yeah, field recording is a big part of this. And so, obviously, you can't control or always know what's, what you're going to capture, but you're picking the spot. So is that the intent? Like, is that where you're leading, that we're, we are going to a specific area, we're yeah. going to go to a specific environment, because we're trying to capture what we think is going to be there? Right. Yeah, for sure. We're, that's that's going to be a parameter is, is where we are. And then, yeah, the idea is that whatever we find, that's that's it. And, it, and it's the same with improv. I mean, the whole, the imp, you know, the improv philosophy kind of just spills over into everything because wherever we go, whatever we find with the microphone or whatever happens, it's like there we are. And that's what we have to work with. So yeah. awesome. Well, let's let's hear a five minute jam. Okay. How do you, I mean, song, jam, what, I, I want to make sure I'm getting movement. it right. Movement. Maybe. Yeah. Ooh, know. actually, no, let's go with that. Let's hear a, a, a movement, uh, just, and you're going to rip, right? Yeah. Okay, here we go. Arthur King, live on Snacky Tunes, here at Danger Bird Studio in L.A.
awesome. So good. Thank you. I can see why uh, you can let that th- those movements go for a long time. <laughs> yeah. Um, Just getting started. So when you're getting into these movements, make, making making uh, decisions and choices as artists working together uh, in the moment, how do you decide who's leading, who's falling um, back you, where you're taking it? Because it is cohesive. You know, it sounds um, like a piece that's been thought out. And I know that part of that probably comes with being comfortable together as musicians. But talk to me a little about the process as you're creating it in the moment. Uh, I don't know. It's hard to explain. It's just like uh, there's no real lead. Um, obviously, there's like some give and take and push and pull and stuff, but nothing's really figured out ahead of time. So it's kind of just like gut and um, a lot of listening. I, I think like probably, at least fr- from my background of like mostly like indie rock, songwriting kind of stuff, um, doing this doing this work has been like a an eye opener or an ear opener, I should say. You know, like nice. it's all about listening and... Um, if Peter starts something or I start something, you know, that kind of dictates how it's going to go. And then one move of one knob or a button or a key, you know, can like take it to a new place. And that's like the exciting part, you know, like, I don't know. I just have no idea where this is going. So I don't know if that's a good answer. (laughs) No, I mean, um, does it ever go to a bad place? Like Uh, what happens when you find yourself in in a part that isn't working? And how long does it take to sort of figure it out and get out of it? It it always works. It's just a. It's just based on perspective, you know. It's like with two people, it is a little bit more. Um, you know, with like, with the full band, it's like you can just not play, and there's still plenty happening. Sure. But like with two of us, we're kind of always making sound, and so. But it can get dissonant and weird. And the cool thing is, is like when we when we do keep going, we'll go through like let's say that was maybe kind of like the first zone we got into that we just heard. Like it'll it'll morph into this other step and another step after that, and those are the places that, you know, you can't get there any other way than by going through these different kind of waves of exploration. You know, so once you get in like kind of deep, it doesn't take that too long. But once you get to that space, it's like whatever's happening, it's all good. It's 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 you're just in the zone. You know, if that makes sense. No, it does. Um, so for the new album that just came out uh, April 27th, um, Grand Escalante, beautiful album. Thank you. How did you pick that park as the place of where you wanted to do an album? We were looking at BLM land. Um, Explain to people what BLM land is. Bureau of Land Management, uh, which is the best part of the, about the U.S. government. Like that's the only part about the U.S. government. I think that's really awesome. (laughs) <laughs> or it's one of the it's one of the good things, but anyway, they have all this land that is our land. It's this land is your land and my land, and you can go out there and do whatever you want. And um, so there's just these huge open spaces if you if you track them down, and you can go there and just bring everything you need. And you know, we just camp out and bring generators and water and firewood and um, instruments. And um, so yeah, BLM land was the the premise of finding a place to go and and we and it happens that in southern utah there's a, m- a massive amount of blm land so we just 
kind of honed in on the on the internet on a spot generally that looked cool you know worth exploring and we just loaded up the gear and went out there and found it uh there's a really beautiful mini documentary um on the process and for those who are jonesing to see the visuals that we are getting treated to in the studio there's a good amount of the visuals that you have there but what was the plan when you went out um besides just having blm like was there a certain sound you were looking for um in this area uh, how did you record and what was it leading up to for the sort of the final performance? It's funny, we kind of, because we've been out to the desert before and made music and projected on the rocks and stuff. And this, we were kind of going to do a similar thing, but we stumbled upon this, the process really of the field recording. Mm-hmm. Um, we had already kind of incorporated field recordings, but anyway, like we stumbled upon this methodology of grabbing the stuff in the day and doing it at night. It just happened. Um, it wasn't even what we were thinking about necessarily going out there. We were just going to go out there and kind of do our thing, improving and projecting on the rocks and stuff. But capturing the footage really informed the whole process. And so that's that's what's special about this project. Um, changing landscapes is like, you know, what we talked about before, like the field recordings aspect of it. Um, but I- interestingly enough, this last trip, you know, wasn't, we didn't know what we were doing until we did it, which is fun. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, so I know that you don't play songs off Changing Landscape, Grand Escalante, in the sense of that, here's a song on the album, here we're going to play, but next track, can we hear something inspired yeah. from that trip? All this stuff, all the samples you're hearing were recorded out there okay. in Utah. Um, so this is as close as we can get. And the visuals are all from there, too, so... We're, we're getting back to the desert. I mean, it's about to be summertime out here in L.A. Super desert vibes. Perfect. All right, let's hear another song right. from Arthur King here on Snacky Tunes at Danger Bird Studio on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
beautiful. Really nice. So, you know, it's interesting that you picked yeah, yeah, yeah. this park as a place to record because it actually has been in the spotlight so much this year due to the political nature mm. of BLM and public land use and things like that and the government's attempt to privatize it. Do you feel in a way that by highlighting how these places can be inspirational to creativity and art and music, you're helping show a little piece of what this means to the fabric of America? Yes. Okay. <laughs> feel free to expand. <laughs> Sacred land. Yeah, I mean, the, the, again, like after we did it, we saw that stuff in the news. It's not why we chose that spot. But engaging in the environment in that way uh, was super special for us. Like, for instance, there was this little lizard that we just, I mean, there were lots of little, little lizards. But there was one that. Just one lizard. Yeah, there in was the this whole one, place. one lizard in the whole park. Had a little crown. Johnny. Super rip, beat up all the other lizards. So anyway, we got, we, we got his, his picture, you know, on, on video. And then like that night, there he is right there. There he is. For um, all those at home listening, there he is. That night, uh, we, we projected on this huge arch structure, like hundreds of feet tall. This thing was massive. And at one point, like this lizard was up there, just humongous. And he was looking over this, or, he, or she maybe, was looking over this huge valley with no humans in sight. Uh, it was beautiful. And it was like, it was really striking because it was like, man, this is this lizard's domain. You know, it's like, this is, this fits. We're visiting. Totally. And so, you know, engaging in the environment in this creative way and using the sounds and images, it's just like, it's really a cool way to connect and kind of maybe get a different experience of the space. And so after, you know, when the political stuff was happening, it was like, oh man, this is a cool way to, to bring attention maybe to a spot. Um, and not just like kind of planting a flag, like, hey, this is a special spot, but maybe even give someone a different experience of, of a place because, or, or challenge you to kind of, if you go to a space, an open space, to be listening differently or looking at things differently. That's kind of the idea. So for those who want to experience Arthur King in the flesh, how does one go about doing so? Are you going back out to the desert? Do you guys play a little bit closer to home? Is it open sky performances only? You got to join the band. Oh, you got to join the band. <laughs> you got to be the Lizard King? You got to join the band. Yes. Um, but uh, do people see you, or is it just sort of you're creating art and putting it out? Uh, yes, to both. Okay. We, um, we're playing shows in, in, in clubs and bars, and we're playing shows in the middle of nowhere. So if you can figure out how to get there. I feel good. like that's a fun experience to go out to the middle of nowhere and see you guys. You bring in generators? Yes. But batteries, yeah. We try to get as much less less gas. More solar. More solar. More solar. Um, you got I any hookups? Yeah, I got a, I got a good solar guy. <laughs> Once we wrap, I'll give you his number. <laughs> um, and if people want to get the album, check you out online. Where can they go? 
Um, well, our site is whoisartherking.com. Um, you can also stream the records on Spotify or iTunes, all those streaming platforms, and dangerbirdrecords.com, all kinds of places. Well, I want to thank you guys. Really appreciate you bringing the desert vibes to uh, Sunset. Yeah, for um, sure. Thank you. Thank you to Dangerbird for opening your doors to us. We're looking forward to coming back. And uh, one last movement before we get out of here. Feeling it. Let's okay. Do it. I'm Darren Bresnitz, one half your host, Snacky Tunes. This is Arthur King, live at Dangerbird Studios here on Snacky Tunes on heritageradionetwork.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.
We talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.